You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-hosts, Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. Hey, Matt. Hey. 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 How we doing? Good. Mm-hmm. Good? Yeah. Good. All right. We're going out of the box uh, again today with our topic, which is philosophy of science. That's kind of broad and scary, but um, something I've sort of wanted to talk about for a while. I don't know what it is. Like, recently I've been kind of into this link between science and philosophy, and I don't know if it's like an increasingly polarized world that makes me think about that more or or the fact that I've been doing science longer now. I've been here for 20 years, which is pretty crazy. And so I maybe think about things a little bit differently. I don't, I don't know what it is. Also, I listen to podcasts, other podcasts about science and philosophy, which are cool. So you're getting but older and you listen to podcasts. Yeah, oh. that's, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's it, really. But, but I do think there's this, like, sort of disconnect between those of us who do science on a day-to-day basis, like we're crunching numbers or making maps, and a disconnect between that and then actually kind of thinking about elementary philosophical questions that are related to science, like hypotheses and models and theories and uncertainty. We talked a lot about uncertainty in maybe that communications episode, but... um, you know, all these things, values, risk, and a whole lot more. And there's certainly concepts in, in geology that belong to domains and, and philosophy, I think. Um, so before we get into all that, um, let's introduce our guest, who is Dr. Dr. Julia Burston. Julia is an associate professor and director of graduate studies in the Department of Philosophy here at UK. Uh, Julia has a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Rice University an MA in philosophy from University of Pittsburgh, and a PhD in history and philosophy of science from Pitt also. Julia, uh, welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. It's great to have you. Um, give our listeners a little snapshot of, uh, of what you do. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I am a philosopher of science, a little bit dabble in history as well, as you heard on that PhD, but I, I primarily am appointed in philosophy. I teach in philosophy. Most of my research is in philosophy of science, which is the study of how science works. Mm. Um, as, as you were saying, philosophy is one of these kind of sit back, think about it for 3,000 years, come up with seven answers for one simple question kind of disciplines. We like to take our time. Um, and we... Uh, So philosophy of science, the discipline that I am engaged in, is a relatively modern outgrowth of a couple areas of philosophy, primarily epistemology, the study of knowledge, and a little bit of metaphysics, which is the study of what there is in the world. Uh, We tend to think of science as a way of understanding what the world is made of, and philosophers like to ask questions sometimes about whether science is the right way of understanding what's out there in the world. Right. Um, as a philosopher of science, I tend to think it is. Uh, and, and I like to try to understand how scientists use the tools that they have available to them, both 
the tools in their heads, the kinds of reasoning that they do, and then the tools, everything from computer simulations, experimental protocols, funding systems, uh, organizational systems that help make science what it is today. What are you, what are you teaching right now? Right now I'm teaching a graduate seminar on scientific classification. Mm. It's a kind of perennial topic in philosophy, the idea of how we organize the world into categories. Um, there's a guy named Aristotle from a couple <laughs> yeah, millennia ago. You may have heard of him. <laughs> one, of, one of his early works that we have available to us today is, is just called The Categories, right? And so oh. how, how do we carve up the world is a longstanding topic in philosophy. And how do we carve up the world with science and for science is one of my longstanding research interests. Yeah, I think we can get into some of that with some geologic topics um, in this conversation. Oh, yeah, I mean. We, we like to classify <laughs> things. Love to oh, classify. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess not like every scientist probably loves classifying sure. things. But. You just defined philosophy of science, but I had a couple other, of, uh, other notes sort of re related to that. Um, so we're talking about central questions that revolve around what qualifies as science, reliability of scientific theories, like what, what is distinctive about, about science that helps us understand the world or helps us get at, get at truth. And philosophers sort of then, do you all want to understand what we're, as scientists, what we're trying to do, how that works, how well it worked perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I'm like nodding along with you <laughs> for an audio medium. Super helpful. Um, so, yeah, as, as a philosopher of science, I'm... So first of all, philosophy of science within philosophy is a fairly young discipline. Um, we've only been around for about 100 years. Uh, and we tend to uh, both look at the publication record of science to try and interpret and answer philosophical questions, but then also talk to scientists a lot about the methods that we yeah. use to get scientific data, to then take that data, turn it into evidence, take that evidence, turn it into theories, take those theories, turn them into something that we like to call truth, right? And one of the big, scary, exciting things about thinking about science philosophically is that if you pause as you know as someone who's a scientist or scientifically engaged or has thought about science you probably believe a few things about science you believe science is a good way of getting information about the world you believe science probably is doing more good than harm although you know i, I know this podcast especially you all are not afraid of getting into all of the <laughs> complex relationships between science and um human life at large but you also believe science changes, right? You believe that as we make discoveries, we change our minds about things. And that's, that's a pretty normal set of things to believe about science, both that science is right and also that it can change. Mm -hmm. But as a philosopher, you know, if we're, if we're trying to unpack the kind of logical foundations, the, the bare bones, ground, bottom of the barrel truths that are at the heart of what we believe, I've just said science is true and science is false. Mm -hmm. And understanding how both scientists and philosophers and the public at large can hold on to those sets of beliefs, which 
if and it's it's an oversimplification, right? Like I don't want to scare anyone. There and there are answers, right? There are answers to the story of how we believe that science is right, but also science can improve and can change. But I do think that the ways that we answer those questions can be really important to interfacing between science and the public who, you know, there's there's been a loss of trust in science yeah. over the last 30 or 40 years and trying to understand that can be a challenge and especially a challenge for someone who has a like fairly optimistic trusting viewpoint of science and so one of the things that we do in philosophy of science is try and unpack why we believe what we believe and what chains of evidence or chains of knowledge will allow us to continue to make scientific discoveries i i try to steer away from using the word belief when i tell people that i'm a scientist which is mm. not that often but mm -hmm. I, and i try to steer more towards accept accept using accept instead of belief because yeah. we're accepting this we're accepting science as a process or a tool to understand the natural world um is, is using belief i mean maybe it's just a sort of everyday vernacular kind of word but like using belief the wrong the wrong word or maybe philosophers maybe <laughs> better in your in your world i i can tell you why i use it okay um i use it because when we think about the roots of what makes something knowledge there's there's a common story about what you need what the conditions are to have knowledge um and one of those conditions is you have to believe a fact in order to know the fact if you don't believe the fact you can't know the fact right that's i i i might i might think this is gonna this is i'm not gonna be able to do a good example on the fly so you can cut this part no worries um but the, the way that we tend to analyze what counts as knowledge, whether it's scientific knowledge or everyday knowledge, like I know that the shirt that I'm wearing is purple. If I didn't believe that the shirt that I was wearing is purple, I couldn't know that the shirt that I'm wearing is purple. So we as philosophers talk about beliefs because belief is a condition of knowledge. However, belief has been you know, the, the way that we think about beliefs, it often gets associated much more with uh, religious Religion, belief, yeah. with faith-driven faith beliefs yeah. than with evidence-driven beliefs. Right. Um, but, you know, if you think about some of the conversations that you've had on this podcast, the, the science communicators, right, they're trying to bring you to shared understanding. You have to change an idea, change a belief in someone's head in order to get there. And... I think it's an interesting question. Should we set aside that word belief and the way we use it in society or should we reclaim it? Yeah. Uh, that's something I think about sometimes. It's not an active research project, but it's it's a question that I have kind of niggling in the back of my mind when I'm working, especially when I'm working with scientists. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, yeah it's very, I mean, yeah, that word belief, I mean, I think like Matt said, I, I try to steer away from it because um, it projects some kind of weird uncertainty that only exists in my head. You know, w that's what I think mm -hmm. somebody might think what I'm saying 
I believe, you know, the earth is this old, but believe in climate change. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it really it genuinely gets. like climate change beliefs are a big part of where you see that that idea of belief getting mm-hmm. co-opted. Yeah. yeah, and we're worried about like projecting uncertainty, although as scientists, we're okay with uncertainty because mm-hmm. we recognize that that's a part of science, but but it the perception is as yeah. if we project uncertainty, then people are going to take that and say, well, you know, that's your belief. That's not what I believe. And we're yeah. worried about that response, I guess. Of right. What you get back if you say, you, I believe. Exactly. Like you want to be trusted, but you also want to clearly communicate uncertainty, what we don't know. Like I wouldn't say I believe in plate tectonics and continental drift. But why not? <laughs> I would say, well, I could be, I mean, maybe it's okay to say that, but I would say I, I accept yeah, that yeah. No, I agree. Uh, I physical process of, of that happening within the earth. But I, I do remember from like philosophy 101, like going through sort of those conditions. And so like you jogged my memory there and I mm-hmm. kind of can see where that comes from now. So that is really fascinating. Do you remember the other two conditions? No. <laughs> I don't. Oh, man. I don't I, at all. Well, I maybe took. maybe this will maybe this will help and and might steer us steer us towards some some different ideas, right? So the the classic story, and this is like middle of the twentieth century, is uh, that in order to have knowledge, you have to believe it, but that belief also has to be justified and true, and so you get justified mm-hmm. true belief is knowledge. Now there's a like weird, interesting explosion of that theory in, within the philosophy world, and we're, we don't have to get into that right now because <laughs> it's like funny infighting of philosophers. <laughs> but the connection that philosophers want to draw between belief and knowledge goes through truth, right? And so then the question of what is true and specifically how do we use science to get at the truth becomes kind of the more central piece of how philosophers of science like to think about knowledge. So yeah, I, I said belief because it's part of how my discipline talks, but it's it's actually not a big part of my research. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's well put. I, yeah, I get, I understand that. Um, so that I think that leads to uh, we've talked about a bunch of disciplines here in science. How do you think about boundaries between scientific disciplines? You mentioned you work with chemists before. Um, how do you think about the boundaries between physics, chemistry, geology, biology, and is there a, a need to see more unity and cross-disciplinary work and collaboration amongst uh, these disciplines in science, like you know, mm-hmm. st- stemming from epistemological kind of roots? Yeah, uh, it has to. So. You've asked about seven questions. <laughs> um, I'm trying to figure out where, where to even start. But I, how do I how do I think about boundaries between disciplines? Well, me, I think about it with a lot of enthusiasm and anxiety. Like me, I think about most important things. I'll re- I'll rephrase. Um, is is sort of connecting a lot of disciplines epistemologically better for determining how we come to accept things are true? Oh, I like that. Wow. Oh, oh. <laughs> <Hey-o>. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Um, well, and, and as a philosopher, I want to say, what do you mean by better, right? Oh. That's, mm. that's always the way, is for the philosopher to ask the next question. But <laughs> since I am not only a philosopher, I'm an interviewee, I will try and give you at least one answer. Um, so the idea that we should unify scientific knowledge across the disciplines is one that has a long history within the sciences and also within what's called natural philosophy, which was like the precursor to the sciences. The idea of like, let's go pick up some leaves and try and draw them and see what they look like and see if this leaf looks like this leaf. Natural history, natural philosophy bled into historically the, the things that we call science today. And for a long time, people just kind of assumed that all of the sciences would reconcile with each other. But then what happened is that as we started to learn more and different things and get more human effort and more specialization into each of the sciences, I mean, if you think about, think about this as like a population story, we have more people doing more work in the world, period, than we ever have, which also means you know, as, as like a kind of contingent fact, we have more people doing more work on science than we ever have. There's more effort being put into understanding pieces of the world than there ever has been before, um, just as a sheer fact of population growth. And the way that that has gone has been a lot of specialization. A lot of people getting really expert in really narrow areas and needing less to understand other areas of the world in order to work on their area. Or if you think about it as just kind of like a rescaling problem, the grid's gotten finer. And so the expert that you have who is, you're kind of like second degree away from your research is doing something that's much more similar to what you're doing than they would have been if you had asked someone who's doing like the second degree away from your research in 1750. Um, <laughs> So the idea that we can understand pieces of the natural world empirically still undergirds how most scientific effort yeah. is done. And we tend to think that if we can do it empirically, what we mean by empirically, you know, it's data-driven, right? So it, the, the empirical approach is let's use our senses and use the evidence of our senses. And then um, increasingly, and this is, this is like a fun piece of philosophy of science, how do you then take things like microscopes, seismographs, um, GPS satellites, do, how do we understand those in relationship to our human senses? And like, does it still count as empirical data if you have to run it through seven layers of simulator and false color or to be able to mm -hmm. In, in my case, like see the teeny tiny chemicals that, uh, that mm. some of my chemist friends are working on. Um, so, but, but we tend to think that there's something unified about that empirical approach. And because we think that, and because we tend to step out of the same buildings and the same doors are there over and over, we tend to think that there's just kind of one world there that we can expect to behave in certain ways. Um, now for four or five centuries now philosophers have worried about where that expectation comes from and whether it's a rational belief to believe that the same door we walk out today is going to be the door we walk out tomorrow and that's called the problem of induction it's a classic problem of knowledge and philosophy 
And it's a problem that has a special relationship to the sciences because the sciences are necessarily inductive. They're taking limited amounts of evidence and expanding from there, right? We, we make inferences, and those can be predictions. They could be retrodictions. We could say, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a, a poster behind me or in front of me of, of a bunch of earthquakes, and, like, we see something happen in Sumatra. We, do we expect a similar thing to happen in Chile? Um, so, you know, right. not just predictions in time, but predictions in space. Um, so sci science is necessarily an inductive practice, which means that it can't be certain in the kind of philosophical, logical sense of We certain. have to make generalizations about things. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's where you get this, this question of how do we think about uncertainty? Why do we use the word acceptance instead of belief? What are we encoding in the ways that we talk about the evidence that comes to us? Um, we've gone back to evidence again instead of answering the question about the unity of science. <laughs> and part of that is because I, um, I have some pretty complicated feelings about the unity of science. Uh, I've been working as a philosopher of science for 15 years easily now. Um, and it's, it's kind of a bugaboo of mine. So I started, I started life wanting to be a physicist. Uh, I guess I started adult life wanting mm. to be a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come out of the womb, yeah. um, much to my parents' disappointment. No, I, I wanted to be a physicist, and I still love physics. And I had a number of frustrating experiences in physics, both as a as a like early physics student and as a philosopher. Um, but one of the things that happens is that people tend to think that physics is what science is. Um, and there's a historical reason for that, some of the ways that we encode uh, both what a, what a theory is, what a, what a theory is uh, mm. mathematically. We tend to see the kind of mathematization of science track with physics first, um, and then everyone wants to use math because math feels more certain and more uh, believable than <laughs> pictures or those, words. Uh, yeah, there's governing um, laws in, you can point to Exactly, there. And, and those laws, you know, we, we tend to think of physics as the most general of sciences. It covers the largest scope. Like physics governs human bodies. It also governs rocks and chairs. Biology right. only governs the bodies. Right. Geology only covers the rocks, <laughs> right? Uh, so it's, it's more specialized. Um, and, and so because we look to physics as a model of the way that sciences work and because physics is general, we tend to have this expectation that sciences should be general but the, and, and unified in the, in the way that you're asking, right? Uh, but then that bleeds very naturally into sciences should look like physics. And that's where I have some problems mm. um, in, in my own research, where I'm trying to steer people away from the images of physics that we have as the models of what science can and should be. Interesting, um, yeah. So, so just as an example there, you were asking about connecting across disciplines. And physics isn't that great at that, right? Like physics, especially like the super general theoretical physics, physics, they don't need a whole lot of help from biologists or geologists or, you know, psychologists in order to get their work done. Um, but the kind of connective interdisciplinary science that we see, we see all over funding calls uh, from agencies in the right. 21st century, right? Like everyone wants to be interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary. 
Um, High schools have totally redone their curriculums on this. Yeah, uh, and integrating science. Mm-hmm. It, absolutely right, and so and so thinking about what it means to even do science is a little bit up in the air right now, and it's it's up in the air in some good ways because we are getting to think about what it looks like to connect these disciplines that we spent the 20th century kind of like off in our corners building our own little Lego blocks. And now we're like, how do we take this piece of Lego and this piece of Lego and turn it into a house or a, you know, wing commander? (laughs) If you're you're a bigger dork. Um, Which I I like to uh, pretend that I'm not. I definitely am. Um, so, So I like to look at the ways that our scientific content bleeds across disciplinary lines, but then also some of the ways that our methods bleed across disciplinary lines. And there's a whole strand of research in philosophy of science in our sister discipline, which is called science and technology studies. Hmm. Um, and there's, there's a whole series of scholars who've devoted their careers to looking specifically at how knowledge transfers across disciplinary lines. Um, and I actually have a really cool grad student right now who's working on that in, as it comes to climate change and how we get oh, nice. different different mm. kinds of local knowledges mm-hmm. coming into climate science. And he's actually using some of the some of the theories that we have about how we move knowledge from, say, biology to chemistry or chemistry to geology or back and forth. There's a lot of different models for how we can move knowledge from science to science, and he's looking at those models and saying, well, we could also use that to understand how local and regional community knowledge, that Mm. specialized knowledge that you have from knowing a place, Mm -hmm. um, and incorporate that into understanding and mitigating climate disasters. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. It's really cool. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's really cool. Let's let's maybe connect some of this... um, connection um with geology when we when we first met we we've only met once um yeah. we you told me there is a philosophy of geology that's a thing i got real excited oh wow yeah, oh, okay. yeah. i didn't i didn't really know that um it's like the new hot topic in oh. philosophy of science right now philosophy people are getting geology. excited about a hot topic. yeah I, wow i, I love and it water. Just... and water <laughs> <laughs> good good actually my one of my one of my absolute <clears throat> favorite projects uh that a woman in boston is doing uh on philosophy of geology has to do with dunes Oh, um, cool. So it's it's like right at that fun fluid rock interface. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I I write sometimes about fluid dynamics and like boundary layer modeling and fluid dynamics, and so she's got some really cool Dune stuff that's coming, and oh, and cool. you know we're we're talking and informing each other's work. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. Um, so like some of it is really technical work on how our mathematical models, uh, how we get how we get information from multiple mathematical models. So I think you and I have talked previously about the idea of multi-scale modeling and how multi-scale modeling in the physical sciences, like I I tend to come from condensed matter areas um, and condensed matter and geology are not so far apart, I like to think. (laughs) Um, Certainly, certainly closer than like, you know, quantum and high energy are to geology. Yeah, Yeah, or at least in in space. (laughs) There's a perception that geology is sort of just a historical science and doesn't have this scalable, um, you know, way to way to look at um, the earth and, um, you know, models of plate tectonics Mm -hmm. and models of of particle scale things like 
that is in geology as well. It's not yeah. just a historical uh, science. So, so I learned about it because we were both thinking about condensed matter. I was thinking about very small condensed matter. She was thinking about much bigger condensed matter at a at a you know at the kind of other end of things. But then it turns out that there's this whole other strand within philosophy of geology that's looking at the way that you get evidence in geology. And there's some really cool, weird things that happen with deep past, deep time, um, trying trying to reckon with getting reconciling like very uh, rapid fire kind of chemical techniques with, you know, every, everything from like, and this is where like geology bleeds into other historical sciences, right? Paleontology mm -hmm. and archaeology and mm -hmm. trying to trying to make sense of, for, for me, it's always going to be the chemistry first, like the, the chemical records that are in the fossil records that are in the archaeological records. And so um, it's, it's really started taking off within my community as a way of thinking about the nature of evidence and the role of time in um, taking something that we call data and turning it into evidence, right? And we, a lot of scientists will use data and evidence interchangeably right. as, as words yeah. for like the stuff we get out of doing our science <laughs> and then we use it to turn it into facts or theories or inferences or more science. Uh, yeah, that's... Right? I, yeah, I, I rarely use the word evidence, but... Really? Yeah, like I don't... Maybe I should. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll tell I, I you how we use it, and maybe that'll help. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. So, so we talk about data as the the stuff that you're gathering with your senses, whether mm -hmm. your senses are just raw, you uh, know, observation, eyes, eyes looking at stuff, smelling stuff, touching stuff, tasting stuff, um, or whether it's you know advanced tools and computer simulations you get the numbers in the computer you get the lines on the seismograph um once you then try and take that and interpret it turn it into new understanding new knowledge then that data turns into evidence evidence is always evidence for something data can be just like raw data left alone it doesn't have to be for anything but evidence always has to be for something yeah but we tend to not care that much about collecting data unless we're trying to turn that data into evidence for something that's a good point uh, so yeah but you could use the same set of data for different Absolutely. bits of evidence right so Absolutely. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah evidence that will explain some kind of natural phenomena yeah yeah evidence evidence is often connected to explanation Right, either either explaining something or building a theory. That's what we like yeah. to do with our evidence, making yeah. predictions, all of the kind of knowledge-driven activities of doing science. So it's kind of a, a, so I I did geologic mapping. Yeah. And I mean, when I was mapping, and Matt, you map too. Mm -hmm. um, that's a data collection activity, mm -hmm. but wasn't doing it to really. I mean, it was. It was go map here, make a map, we're, see what rocks we are in were that. trying to extend the distribution of the same types of rocks and ages of rocks in an area. Yeah, yeah. Evidence um, was, but the, I don't know, sample, well, samples we took? Well, I, I would say the evidence there, I mean, in this, the, how we've been discussing this, that's the data is this, is this map. Um, but it's interesting because I wasn't really collecting it with, 
some gathering evidence in mind the way you were just using it. So I feel like it was just purely data collection. And right, then, right. And then making inferences from that data about certain things. But the map is an interpretation. I know the map's an interpretation. Because like the data yeah. would be like the fossils or like what is yeah. mineral, like mineral symbols. Mineral. Right, like what yeah. led you to then that interpretation. Yeah. I saw that light go off in your head as you were talking. <laughs> I was like, I know she's going to get there. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in, in geology, more than a lot of sciences, has a fuzzy line between when you, when you call something data, when you call something evidence, both because of work with you know, folks and organizations like KGS, where a lot of what you're trying to do is just map places, but also because evidence from the deep past goes through, there's a philosopher named Sabina Leonelli uh, who writes a lot about data and evidence. And one of her arguments is that data goes on a journey over the course of its lifetime mm. as data, where it can be evidence for a lot of different things. And there's not, she, she actually pushes back on the idea that data is just data and doesn't have to be data for something. And that she says like all data is collected for certain sets of purposes. And so in order to understand a piece of data, even as a piece of data, you have to know something about the journey that it took to get to that number or that picture or that, you know, that smell. So, but, but yeah, and I mean, I think this is where Sarah, Sarah picked up really quickly that idea of like, once you're putting it into a map, that's, that's really blurring the line between data and evidence. And this, this could be the next hot project in philosophy <laughs> of geology, right? Is like when we're mapping, how are we how are we thinking about um, what what's data and what's evidence in the map? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, that's for sure. That's that's <laughs> what we do. I mean, that's there's some there's some arm waving there, but, but it's that's... like you you can only collect what you can collect and see what you can see, and at some point you construct it to get information out to the world that will be helpful for someone. Yeah. So it is both. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and there's also, you're collecting it, right? You can collect it. You can see what you can see. There's the idea that, so Matt and I talked about this a little bit. The first time we met, science is done by people, right? And we are limited by the people senses we have. Um, if bees did science, it would probably look a lot different, and the laws of nature <laughs> they would come up with would have to do with different things. And this comes back to that unity question of like, does that mean that bees live in a different world than us? Mm, I'm not actually that interested in the answer. I've, I've spent too much time with philosophers, and I've decided it's <laughs> kind of boring. I would have loved um, to have been a part of that conversation, though. That sounds kind of fun. Uh, late night. Right. It, it is it's a great late That's night conversation. Good for a party. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, that's that's what we do at parties. Yeah, uh, right. super fun to have around. <laughs> no, um, I and and so the idea that you're the one collecting the data, the evidence, uh, has has a lot to bear on what it is that you're collecting, and and so like when something goes from being not data to data is another moment there where like human intervention. Um, humans are deciding what makes a piece of science a piece of science. Right. Not necessarily consciously, not because you as scientists are sitting around in a room thinking, 
ah, yes, I will make this science into science now, and this <laughs> science, this will not be science. That's um, what I say when I walk into my office every morning. Right, yeah. <laughs> it gets me going. <laughs> but it's, but it's, you know, like, because of the nature of the creatures that we are, we have certain interests, we have certain priorities. Some of those are scientific, some of them are extra scientific, which doesn't mean super duper scientific, it means... <laughs> outside of science. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, maybe some of them are extra scientific. Super scientific. Super scientific. Um, but, but, you know, like, we're mapping things in Kentucky where we all live and we care about it because we all live here. Right. Um, you know, and we care about other parts of the world for other reasons, but we always, we always care and there's always reasons and that's how science gets done. And so it's sometimes hard to reconcile that with the idea that science is just trying to give you the bare facts about reality because it never has been. It's always been facts that we care about for some purpose. Even if that right. purpose is just learning more, that's still a purpose and that's still a human fact about the way that our brains work and the way that our species works. Cool, yeah. Um, did you all know that uh, GSA has a history of philosophy, history and philosophy of geology division. I had totally I didn't know that. I think I've just seen the history part of that and didn't realize philosophy it, was in that. On the website, it's history yeah. and philosophy of geology. But I don't, I don't know if they're super active. Like, I don't remember. <laughs> this, uh, is yeah. big, this is a big, this is a big. No, uh, I, 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 I know America. because that lady <laughs> who wrote the Dune paper, I think she was actually one of the ones who like, oh. I don't remember oh. if she lobbied to get philosophy included in there or oh. if she's just participated in that section. But nice. do, divisions yeah. do get their names changed every yeah. time. Oh, okay. So okay. maybe yeah. it was her name. Added. Her name, by the way, is Elisa Bakalich. Oh. Um, okay. In case anyone wants. Anyway, to I, I, don't, I don't know really if they're like super active at GSA or not. But I've seen their table. Yeah, yeah. they have a table. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Definitely gonna be. I'm, yeah, I'll be visiting. Looking now. a lot more at this <laughs> in the schedule. Julia. Um, some of this we talked about uh, when we met, not a lot, but I wanted to unpack it a little more. With with a lot of politicizing of issues, tribalism today, how do science philosophers think about misinformation? What's not <laughs> science? Um, what I've heard described as information siloing, right? So we all have our insular bubbles, I guess, of where we get information and what we think of as science or, or theories even. Um, I don't know, how, how do science philosophers think about this new world, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so the answer is a lot of different ways. Um, there are philosophers of science who make their research careers center on the question of misinformation and they're cool they're actually doing some like game theoretic modeling agent-based modeling mm -hmm. of how information is transferred across communities to try and understand and apply the idea of uh, what's called epistemic diversity so um, epistemic epistemology we've been throwing that word around a little yeah. bit. Uh, so epistemic epistemology all all sort of knowledge related and the idea of epistemic diversity is the idea that people come to the table with different knowledge bases. And that could be really basic, like a chemist and a physicist, a geologist and a 
uh, biologists are all going to have different expertise, different disciplinary training, different stores of content in their heads. Um, and they're going to think about problems differently because of that. But also, because science is done by humans, uh, there is epistemic diversity that comes from personal experience, from extra scientific experience. So people are going to think about problems differently based on the way that they solve problems at home, based on the way they were raised, based on the kinds of populations that they interact with when they're not in the lab or the workroom. And so some of the models uh, that have been looked at by philosophers of science who are studying misinformation look at how um, if you have everyone who's trained in the same way, often they'll arrive at the truth. Occasionally there's like a certain probabilistic outcome where uh, everyone kind of like does an echo chamber on each other and uh, gets to a false belief, gets to a false piece of uh, information about a scientific enterprise. Um, but epistemically diverse groups of scientists will get there faster. And that often means that actually diverse groups of scientists will get there faster. And so this is related to the more general question of misinformation, disinformation, because it helps us start to understand what happens in both intentional and unintentional echo chambers, mm. where the same beliefs can get passed back and forth. And if you're you know, if your social media feed is fed with people who have all come from the same background as you, who have all um, come up in the same disciplinary training, and I, like, I'm not, I'm not just talking about like red Facebook and blue Facebook. I'm talking <laughs> about like, if you only have geologists on your feed, <laughs> you're gonna think that there are certain problems that are really important in science and certain problems that aren't. Um, so. As a way of combating misinformation, using philosophy of science, we are thinking about it actively as a discipline. Um, I'm actually in the middle of trying to decide if I'm going to be the chair of a committee that works on this oh. in my uh, in my association, the Philosophy of Science Association, right now. Um, and and it's not really where my research comes from. But it's something that I think about a lot and that I like to talk about because I move in a lot of different circles in my personal life and in my professional life. I talk to philosophers. I talk to scientists. I'm affiliated faculty in gender and women's studies. I work with historians. I work with chemists. I work with agricultural scientists. So like, I talk to a lot of different people academically. And then I also grew up in 4-H and I'm like, you know, I, I, I do a lot of stuff with agriculture in my spare time. and. Uh, talk to people who don't get what the university does or what it's about. And so, um, you know, I, I think about it a lot in my own life because yeah. I try to be epistemically diverse and, <laughs> and, and try to incorporate a range of experiences. And I think that's one of the better lessons that's come out of philosophy of science. It's like if you want to safeguard yourself, Talk to more people. Yeah. Find out why they yeah, believe yeah. what they believe. Exactly. Right. Like everything has become a kind of binary arguments, and yeah. I think we got to get away from that. Like we're all we're all relying on the scientific process to get us somewhere. Right. We're relying on these observations and 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 getting at truth, like we were saying, and our interpretations of science to get at reality, a picture of reality. I mm -hmm. guess that's going to benefit us all. Um, but we've now sort of turned that into these binary 
wins and losses. Like mm-hmm. this is right, this is not right. And we just uh, yeah you need to I talk mean, to more people. Yeah, you know, there's there's the there's the story, and it's not wrong. It's just like not a very useful story of well, this is the polarization has come from media cycles, and it's come from both. It initially, the cable news cycle into the 24-hour news cycle into the social media news cycle, where people need to understand like stories, and we like to we like to tell things stories in, in terms of narratives, yeah. Yeah. and narratives of right and wrong and win and loss are easier narratives. And then in in the internet day and age, clickbait is provocative. But before that, it was uh, you know it was um. Oh, why am I blanking on the name of, like, the National Enquirer type papers? Oh, um, yeah. Tabloid. Tabloids. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Tabloids, yellow journalism. (laughs) I mean, you know, like, Hearst back in the 30s, 20s, 30s. You know, everyone's everyone's writing things to sell papers because that's their enterprise. And if it's more provocative, it's going to sell more papers. And um, science has gotten swept up in that. And it's, again, gotten swept up in that because humans are the ones doing it. And so, like, we're not – I think it's a mistake to think of science as somehow protected from the rest of human experience. And um, I think that's actually – like, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for science. It's a good thing for people. It's nice when we can get science to help people. Um, and it also is good to remind ourselves that science can and has hurt people and the beliefs that people form, coming back to that big scary word belief, right? <laughs> the beliefs that people form about science and its role in their lives have a lot to do with their personal experience. So when yeah. you talk to people who have been, who, who have like formed beliefs about the fact that like maybe there's too much money going to science, maybe there's uh, maybe scientists are just in it for the ego. Maybe scientists are in it to harm certain populations. Asking where those beliefs come from and unpacking why those beliefs have formed and doing it in a genuinely open way. This isn't, I think it's philosophy. I have colleagues who probably wouldn't think it's philosophy, but I think this is actually some of the most important work that philosophers of science can do is to try and just unpack the belief systems that have come to inform people's attitudes about science. Yeah, well, one thing that uh, popped into my head in, in this part of the conversation was um, the just a theory mm-hmm. statement that people make. Right. Yeah. And that's frustrating for a lot of scientists when someone says, oh, that's just a theory. And of course, there's a lot more to it than that, depending on the discipline. But Yeah, and I mean, people have been saying that for hundreds of years. <laughs> that's right? just a theory? That's Evolutionary theory, <laughs> yeah, right? That's right. that's one of the early ones, right? And mm-hmm. um, and and it comes back to what do we mean by our words, right? Why is it important to use the words we use to right. define the categories? And we know as scientists that theory means evidence informed, but the public perception is that theory means there's not evidence, and so um, and and it's just a belief. Right, it's it's merely a belief and not true knowledge. Um, so, I, I don't have an answer for right. what to say when someone says that's just a theory, other than to ask why they think that <laughs> and try not to be a dick about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, 
Okay, I wanted to circle back to one thing that I did forget to that I wanted to talk about, and I think maybe you wanted to talk about, um, and then we'll get into we'll kind of wrap up then with some of your specific uh, research. Uh, back to some geology stuff. You mentioned when we first met about um, geologists and engineers' notion of soil <laughs> or, or notion of clays, and, mm. and geologists actually we. we think about that a lot, or I do as a kind of an engineering geologist and someone who looks at landslides. But I, I thought that was great in that philosophers are thinking about how geologists and engineers um, think about soils and clays differently. Yeah, yeah well, so um, I, I think I told you this last that, time, and I want to make else. sure it's on the record now. This is fully poached <clears throat> from your colleague, Jason Oh Porch, yeah. yeah, okay. who is in my seminar right now yeah. thinking about classification and we started class last week, and he was like, you know, I've been thinking about clays, and I've been thinking about how geologists and engineers mean things, mean really different things by clays, and um, this is something I'm still learning about. I'm hoping he'll get excited by it and actually try and, he's, he's auditing oh, the he class, will. but I'm like, I'm, I'm like, why don't you try and write a philosophy <laughs> paper for me on that, and we'll see where we can go with it, because I think it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, so my seminar is all about how we classify. And one of the big lessons there is that, again, humans are the ones doing the classifying. We're doing it for reasons. And those reasons are, even when they're scientific reasons, we sometimes have different purposes in the sciences. You might be trying to do something different with your map than, um, you know, than like a surveyor was doing in the 1800s, they were probably looking for oil, right? And you're making maps for things other than where's the oil. Um, and so you might classify a zone as interesting or important at a different, in a different way. Um, so the ways that we classify in the sciences inform the kinds of research we can do. The things that are classified, the categories, are the things that build our models and our theories and our stores of information, our databases, our stories. I'm working with some chemists right now um, who are up at CAER, and they're trying mm. to build new ontologies, chemical ontologies, which is like a fancy database um, for chemicals. And there's an open question right now about whether there should be one universal chemical database and what that would look like. And we're actually making an argument that you can't have that and you shouldn't want that. Um, and, but that's, that's kind of a provocative argument because it flies in the face of this unity of science idea of like we should just have one world and it's science's job to catalog the world. Um, but the world is made of the things that we interact with in it and we interact with those things in a lot of different ways and the things that we're doing with science are many and varied. And so this Clay's example, I'm still trying to wrap my own head around it and you guys might understand it better than I do, but Jason came to me uh, last week and was like, engineers mean a really different thing by clay than geologists do. Uh, so I'll turn it over and ask you all, like, what does an engineer mean by clay? What do they care about? I Generally, I think they, they, don't, they don't divide clays into, clay, clay is a mineral, so the, but, but it, generally engineers don't divide it up into the different minerals that have different properties. They think of it as just a grain size. Yeah. Oh, it's a Jason grain size. Thing. And, and yeah. we think of it as sort of a grain size, but also with very different behavioral properties that yeah. matter to earth processes. So um, 
that matter to current processes and that also have a history, right? Yeah, like for sure. Geologists are going to care about where the mineral oh, deposits absolutely. came from that built the clay that it is, where engineers want to know its flow, right? And whether whether buildings are going to yeah, crash and they're people interested are going to die. Compaction, stability, mm-hmm. properties. Uh, whereas, yeah, geologists might be more interested in the history of why this rock has kaolinite in it, right? Yeah. Versus <laughs> this other mineral. How that also. relates to the up, soil the evolution and climate as yeah, well, oh, right? Yeah, like, yeah, all <laughs> that um, depositional history. You're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If it's clays and sedimentary rocks. Yeah. So let me ask you a follow-up. Is the way that engineers think about clay, compaction, stability, fluid flow, people dying, um, completely unrelated, completely divorced from the geological conception of clay, the geological classification of clay in terms of minerals and geological processes and the history of how the clay got to be where it is? Or is there a relation? I don't think it's completely divorced. At all, I mean. I mean, especially for somebody like Matt, who I mean, you study landslides. You're a geologist, not an engineer. I would think you would be looking at the properties of the clay. Yeah, I mean, you care about which formations they come from because that helps predict where other um, landslides may occur. I guess. Right. But um, so the geologic history is interesting or important for for predicting, I guess, or or you know, knowing where to explore, but um, but the properties are important for if the landslide actually occurs, right? Yeah, I think I, I hesitate to say engineers may have a more narrow view of I mean, they clays. Engineers. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're still going to say it. You're still hesitating. <laughs> oh, man. Busted. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not totally divorced, but, but engineers, right, they're engineering minds they're solving a specific problem they want to stabilize this embankment this is what the embankment's made of what do i got to do to do that mm-hmm. so maybe my, it's a my, scale my, issue my, some sort of a scale issue but yeah. my mind is thinking about all these other sort of geologic properties of clays and, and types of clays uh, that may influence the behavior of the slope say so not totally divorced but Geologists have the arm wavy kind of look <laughs> at at you know what's really going on. Anyway, there's lots of I mean there's so many things we can place in this bucket of uh, classifying stuff. Like just you mentioned landslides, and I mentioned landslides, but classifying landslides, right? Engineers and geologists do it differently. Um, why do you call this an earth flow? This is not an earth flow. It's a debris avalanche. Okay, why? You know, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so all that stuff's like, yeah, fascinating in our world, but in yours too, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, one of, one of my favorite sets of questions in philosophy is why do we have different classification systems in different sciences for different purposes? And so trying to drive underneath just we're using this word slightly differently to why, and then that question of, well, how is the way that you're using this word related to the way that I'm using this word? 
So it was really fun to play this out, and I can't wait yeah. for the 2024 GSA section. <laughs> I know, really, yeah. <laughs> Topic, paper, in history and philosophy uh, and geology yeah. on <laughs> engineers and geologists yeah. writing about clays. Let's all put it in abstract in uh, one of their sessions yeah. uh, next year. We yeah. could just do a whole session. We could do a session, yeah. 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 But, but I think it's important to ask the question of, you know, like you, we're all being glib and saying the engineers have the more narrow conception, but they care about grain size. They care about the purpose. Yeah. that they're working toward and if there's some important relationships that the geologists are detecting about like well you know if a clay comes with this mineral composition the grains are more likely to stick or they're less likely to stick then that becomes a really important shared piece of information that comes from having these they call them maybe not cross-cutting, but like context-sensitive classification systems. And so paying attention to the context in which you're classifying then can inform you and guide you to new questions in scientific research and in talking across disciplines. Yeah. Um. Awesome. That's that's we could do a whole episode on oh, that. Yeah. That'd be, oh yeah, that'd be real fun. Oh, yeah. um, I'm doing a whole semester on it. <laughs> <laughs> Come by Monday night. <laughs> um, Let's. Uh, I wanted to give you a chance to talk uh, a little bit about your current research. Say say whatever you like. I mean, I know you do work in uh, philosophy of nanoscience. You've uh, mentioned uh, your NSF funded work in ag research and extension. So uh, I don't know. T t take it where you will with for uh, sure. Some yeah. Recent well, let's research. let's stay with classification. Um, I'm thinking a lot about classification these days in my teaching, but also in my research and. Um, I, a lot of my work is about classification. It came, it started with some stuff on chemistry and um, what it is that drives the principles of classification in chemistry. The periodic table of elements people tend to think of as the kind of like be all and end all of scientific classification. That's like the thing that everyone knows when you think about classification. It's, it's even, even more than like the tree of life and the species. It's, it's the thing where it's like, yeah, obviously, you can like sort out the elements and the elements all have their, it's very clear whether something's one element or another and it's very clear the principle that individuates the elements and how they're arranged and periodic properties. Um, and it turns out both that the story historically is really complicated and interesting and how we got to atomic number uh, could have gone a lot of different ways oh. over time. Yeah. Uh, and there were, there were like conferences in the 1920s where they were trying to decide if they wanted to go by atomic weight or atomic number. And so the idea where the periodic table is presented with atomic number now and it seems so obvious and natural and like it couldn't have ever been the other way it could have. It absolutely could have. And wow. it was like people in a room thinking about it that made it go the way it went. Um, but also, chemists don't actually use the periodic table that much. <laughs> right? oh. Like They use chemicals. They use compounds. Chemistry is a science of compounds. It's not a science of the elements. And how we classify compounds is a lot weirder and a lot more interesting. Oh. And so... Um, I started writing about that early on in grad school and then learned about nanoscience, uh, which is a materials science of materials that are one to 100 nanometers in at least one dimension. Naturally um, occurring or not naturally occurring? Mostly non-naturally not occurring. There are folks who will study naturally occurring nanostructured materials, but most nanomaterials are engineered uh, chemically or physically or increasingly biologically. 
Hmm. Um, and so we know when two molecules are the same in a way that we don't know when two pieces of a nanomaterial are the same. Like, so if you think about your favorite molecule, it's probably water or caffeine. Um, picture it in your head. <laughs> if you're thinking of water, you're thinking of the little Mickey Mouse, right? Like big ball, little balls on the side. Um, and to test whether two, two molecules are both water molecules, you think about like, is it the same big ball in the center? Is it the same little balls on the side? Now it turns out that like what actually water is, is a lot more complicated. And the story of the relationship between H2O and water is an early sort of rich area of philosophy of chemistry. Um, oh, had no idea. All right. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and like a lot of the properties that we like out of regular bulk water, uh, things like it getting less dense when it freezes, which gives us life on Earth, um, doesn't come from it being H2O. It comes from complex hydrogen bonding, right? It comes from, it comes from the mix uh. of chemical species that you see H3O plus ions, OH minus ions that make up water. And like most of the bulk properties that we care about with water don't actually come from H2O molecules. And this is, this is like one of the early areas of philosophy of chemistry research was what is the relationship between water and H2O? It's kind of interesting for hmm. its own sake, but it's also interesting for the sake of trying to understand the relationship between microstructure and macrostructure and, and to bridge information across scales. So I was thinking about that a lot in grad yeah. school, and I needed a thesis, and then I learned about uh, nanoscience, and I was like, oh, that's going to be even harder. <laughs> Let me do that instead. <laughs> that's going to be even weirder, because in, in nanomaterials, there's still open questions for a lot of the materials um, of whether we treat them like molecules, where you have to have exactly the same number of atoms and exactly the same configuration in order for them to be the same sample, or whether we're gonna treat them like materials where you can have two pieces of rebar that have different dimensions, different weights, maybe even different alloys, but we're gonna call them both rebar. And so the, the boundaries of where we classify and what it is that we need in order to call something the same thing as something else um, starts to get really complicated at the nanoscale. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and talking about that, writing about that for philosophers as a set of arguments about why we can't just have or expect or want one classification system for all of science, hmm. um, but then also talking to scientists about it because it's still an open question. We're in that like conference in the periodic table room now with nanoscience. They're still trying to figure out how to classify nanomaterials, and I was actually... That's cool. Um, called out to Washington, D.C. to like literally be in one of these rooms with 35 chemists earlier this summer where they're trying to figure out how, how to build classification systems for nanomaterials because we, like, we haven't figured out if it's atomic number or atomic weight yet. And, and so there's a lot of practical upshots to thinking about classification as a philosopher and pushing on these questions and paying attention to the contexts so I've been doing a lot of that work, and then I'm also getting this project off the ground. Um, I was on sabbatical last year, and the National Science Foundation uh, allowed me to go up to Michigan to um, talk to a bunch of extension professors and farmers at Michigan State about agricultural science. And uh, so I have a project called the Epistemology of Agricultural Science, 
and now that we all know what epistemology is, uh, you can tell that it's, it's an inquiry into how knowledge works in agricultural science. Philosophy of science hasn't thought about agricultural science at yeah. all. Um, yeah. Like oh, wow. it, yeah. we've been thinking about geology for ten or fifteen years. <laughs> no one's thinking about ag science yet. Wow. Um, lots of people think about plant biology, but ag is ag is a different beast, right? It's yeah. it's a different set of human relationships with land and with biological matter and with livestock and soils. with material and communities and soils and so. I'm trying to make it a thing, I guess, and and starting to pay attention to the different ways that not just um, the kind of applied and interdisciplinary nature of agricultural science, but also the role of extension in forming agricultural science in the United States has shaped scientific knowledge as it's grown from 1862 to now. That's awesome. Everyone go back and listen to our extension episode with Bradley. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So. It's a great episode. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <clears throat> this has been awesome. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, we could go on. Yeah. Any, uh, Sarah, do you, yeah. do you have anything? Hint, I got hint? two now. I have okay. two now. So uh, as I go. usually do, we've got to relate it back to caves, right? And so I have come up with Classification two. Classification of caves? No, oh. not quite. Um, but these two do relate, I think, okay. to our conversation. So there's a classic, like Plato's Allegory of the Cave, um, which I think we kind of got at. Like classification and forms, maybe even like relates. Oh, for sure. The forms, the forms are one of the earliest. So Plato's theory of forms. Um, we kind of have these. They're just called platonic forms now, and philosophers like to talk about Plato's heaven, where <laughs> the, the forms, like the, the epitome, the stereotype of each thing lives, right? And whether the thing is a triangle or love or a tiger, um, you have like the form and you can check whether something counts as right. a member of that category by checking its match to the form, <laughs> right? That's, that's Plato's idea, mm -hmm. and you... so. Sarah, you tell me, the, the cave allegory. And then the allegory of the cave. So I have three, um, maybe. Um, the allegory of the cave, there are some like prisoners, I believe, in this cave. Um, and they're looking at the cave wall. And there's like a fire behind them. And so all they can see are their shadows. But like that's all they know. So to them, like that is like their experience of reality. Um, and I can't remember like how they get out to it, but at some point they leave the cave and they come and find this like world of sunshine, this whole other world that was actually the reality. So they were looking at this like false reality this time, but they didn't know. And so the allegory of the cave is like now like that knowledge gain and, and now they know and maybe there's probably more to it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's 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 bang on. You had a good philosophy <laughs> professor. Um, and, and so it's not just their shadows, right? It's the shadows of all of the I other think, things uh, in the world. And so all they can see of the world is the shadows projected on the wall of the cave. And when they, it, no one ever says how they escape. Like, it's just like, and okay, they're, and okay. they're, and they're escaped. <laughs> um, we'll like forget about the human condition of prisoner. And, and it's right. Like, yeah, and, and liberation, and we just like don't talk about that part. Um, 
suddenly right. they're free <laughs> right, and they're right. not traumatized by it at all. Right. They're just looking around in the sunshine <laughs> and like thinking about new things and seeing the objects whose shadows were cast. And so ah, the idea is that those real objects are like the forms. And so hmm. his his point about the forms is like all we have is access to the shadows. And there's this richer, realer, more perfect world of the forms that creates all of the shadows that we see walking around in the world today. Awesome. That's your best Karst connection yet. Oh, man. I'm, so I'm going to make it even better because I think a question I've never heard anyone ask that we should ask about the cave is how is the texture on the wall of the cave affecting the shadow? How is what the cave Ooh. is made of affecting the experience of the prisoners while they're trapped in there? And how is the the context of them getting free of that going to affect their understanding of the shadows that they saw before? Oh, man. That is a <laughs> lot. <laughs> yeah, GSA 2026. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I smell of paper. Well, we have to go to Greece, I think. Oh, man. Well, All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. But then the yeah. last one that sort of relates to caves, um, I think you were getting at with the bees which is Nagel's, what is it like to be a bat? So there we have a bat Uh, connection as well. And that is saying like we can't experience things as a human in the same way that we could as a bat. Bats, And we don't know how they experience it. We have no way of knowing. That's kind of a consciousness problem too? It's it's consciousness and it's the relationship between consciousness and the senses. So remember we were talking earlier about the idea that science is empirical. We use our senses and... Typically, the emphasis is we use our senses, but it's we use our senses. Um, we can only perceive in certain ranges. And so this philosopher in the middle of the 20th century, Thomas Nagel, asked this question, can we even know what it's like to be a bat? Yeah. Um, and he answered no, because their senses are so different from ours. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Caves, bats, and philosophy, guys. Yeah, there, there you, you have it. I, I <laughs> <laughs> Super Look, duper between, connection. Between the bats <laughs> and what's going on on the on the texture of the cave wall that's affecting the shadow and engineering clays, I think we've got a symposium Wait, we here. We definitely like it. nailed like it. it. Julia. Maybe Plato's symposium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should do this. Yeah, party uh, session. <laughs> could be a party. Yeah, it could be. Uh, Julia, this has been great. You've been very gracious with your time. Awesome discussion. That was great, yeah. 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 Um, this was great. Come back. <laughs> I had a blast. Thank you There's for so being here. There's so much more we could talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Jason <laughs> back in. For yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks cool. a lot. Thank yeah. you, Julia. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Rebecca Frazier for technical support. If you have ideas for the show, email mcrawford.com at uky.edu. Thanks for listening.